Hello and welcome to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Tegal, and today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech supply chain with Jim Miller. If you've worked in the bio and pharma CDMO space for a few years, then there's a very, very good chance that you will know my guest today. Jim is a renowned expert in the space and a regular speaker at all the major trade conferences, including CPHI worldwide. He made his name in the sector after founding and growing FarmSource with his wife, Judy, an online database of pharma and biotech intelligence before selling the business to global data. Today, Jim's an industry consultant and a regular writer for leading industry publications like DCAT and Pharma Technology. Hey, Jim, welcome to the show. Hi, Ramon. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. It's only taken me six months to get you on the show, Jim. So I'm uh, I'm delighted. It took it took lockdown to to get you on the show. So yeah, that's right. yeah. <laughs> all right, Jim. So I imagine most of our listeners will probably know uh, who you are and you know uh, of you, and probably seen you speak at certain trade events. But I- I'd love you to just talk about your kind of uh, journey into the sector, even from college and how you, I suppose, uh, you know, when I did some research on you, I understand you work for the Boston Consulting Group as well. So I'd quite like you just to, I suppose, describe your life uh, before uh, FarmSource and, and what that was like. Sure. Um, now, happy to do that. Um, yeah, I, my uh, my career was pretty interesting and, and varied. Um, I originally got a, a master's degree in uh, regional planning from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And from there, uh, spent three and a half years in Botswana as a Peace Corps volunteer uh, uh, planning rural development programs. And then two and a half years at the World Bank doing project finance, uh, primarily in Africa. Um, and decided uh, as I uh, reached the ripe old age of 30 that uh, I was ready for a change uh, in career and I was fortunate enough to get into Stanford Business School. So I went to Stanford in 81, uh, graduated in 83, um, and um, yeah, it was a, an incredible experience, as you can imagine, um, and spent uh, the, uh, my, the first two and a half years of my uh, MBA life as uh, at the Boston Consulting Group, uh, working uh, in a variety of areas around uh, and related to business strategy, but in a number of different industries, including rubber products, petroleum, information services, uh, industrial fans. I mean, you name it. It, it was a pretty, uh, pretty varied menu of projects. There, I went to work for a publisher of medical books and journals, and that's really where I got into healthcare as a head of corporate development. So I was doing strategic planning and mergers and acquisitions for this uh, medical publisher. And while there, ended up that one of the companies that I was chasing as an acquisition ended up hiring me as as their president. So... Um, <laughs> I uh, spent four years running, and it, that was it was an information services company, uh, business to business, uh, a lot of technical information related to reimbursement from Medicare and private insurance in the U.S. It was a very U.S. Comp, uh, you know type of business, not one you would see in other countries. So I ran that for four years, and uh, that that company was sold. So uh, I did a variety of things for about a year and a half, including spending a year working for a generic pharma company who that that thought they might want to get into the contract manufacturing business. And I was kind of their chief commercial officer for that business for about a year. And so this is 1995. And this is that's when I really became aware of not just contract manufacturing, but but you know, that was really when clinical CROs began to take off. Um, so, uh, you know, I became aware of what was going on in the pharma industry. So in 96, I struck off on my own and started what became FarmSource. 
you know, started with the newsletter and and some directories. And then, of course, that moved to, you know, because late 90s, it was still more or less pre-internet. Um, around 2000, that all moved online. And um, we just continued to grow to grow farm source. And it was really very symbiotic, I think, that, that you know, we got in in the very early days of the uh, CDMO industry. It, you know, it, it uh, you know, Patheon was was really still uh, just a Canadian business uh, when we started. Cardinal Health had not yet bought uh, the soft gel business that became the core of, of what we know as Catalan today. It was RP Shearer. And uh, Lanza had not yet bought uh, the biologics business from Celtech. And, and um, so it was very early days. And most of what was contract manufacturing at that point was either you know, a, a segment of the fine chemicals industry for intermediates and, and APIs, or was pretty much big pharma companies selling excess capacity to each other. So it was really in that late 1990s that the industry started to take off and, and FarmSource, um, you know, we really both rode that, that wave, but also, um, and it helped publicize the industry and help people understand what, what the industry was about and what the value proposition was and who was doing what. And so we really grew with the industry and um, over that uh, 20 years or so. And then at uh, 2016, it, it, uh, it was just time for Judy and I to move on to another, uh, another phase of life. So we, we were able to sell global data and uh, to global data but fortunately, uh, you know, I've been able to stay active in the industry in advisory and consulting and, and writing roles. So, you know, I'm still very immersed in the CDMO industry. Mm -hmm. I love it. Some, some, I've got about a thousand questions to ask you, so I'm going to try and be as, uh, as targeted as, as possible. Do, do, it's interesting when you talk about farm source and I didn't realize it, it kind of went back all those many years. I think the first interaction I had with yourself was probably 2008 or 2009 time. And do, do you think just farm source was in the right place at the right time in the sense that it, it, you, you mentioned like the wave, you know, the, the contract services industry has grown hugely in the last kind of 20 years or so. Do you think just farm source was just at the right place at the right time to ride that wave and, uh, you know, and, and really become a very successful business that you were ultimately able to sell. Um, did you even envisage any of that at the start or was it just a, a kind of a, a organic, magical journey with your wife? Right, right. No, I think, you know, uh, you know, we started off with that, you know, it was very modest. Um, you know, I, I would say, you know, I, I listen, I, th I think when we first started, it was just trying to get through the first couple of years. Um, <laughs> Um, and I, you know, having worked in, in a business, having, having run a company that had a similar business model to where we were ultimately trying to get to, I had a, I had a sense of what the business would look like. Um, but, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't be sure that, that the contract services business would get us all the way. Now, when, when, when we started in, in 96, you know, this, the clinical CRO industry was already starting to grow. Well, you know, and, and we were covering that for the first few years, you know, as, as part of our offering. But, um, you know, frankly, CenterWatch was already out there doing a great job of, of the CRO, covering the CRO business. And so we ended up uh, focusing in on manufacturing and I'd done a lot of manufacturing analysis at, at uh, Boston Consulting Group. So, I, I had a good framework for it. And um, like I said, it was just, um, so from that standpoint, um, yeah, we were fortunate to, to be part of the wave, but you know, I, I, I really do believe, and certainly many people have credited us with helping the industry to grow, you know, by publicizing, you know, what the industry was doing, what companies were doing, what capabilities there were, how it was growing. And, um, you know, in addition to, to what we were publishing at FarmSource, I was writing a monthly column for pharmaceutical technology at that point. Um, so we had a regular forum for 
getting out and and promoting the industry and letting people know. Um, so I, you know, it, it was as I, to use the word again, symbiotic. I think in that in that we help the industry a lot, and um, but obviously we're very much helped by by the way, the way the industry itself grew. Mm-hmm. And I have to I have to ask just as a as you know. My parents worked next to each other and stood next to each other in a in a post office every day for for thirty years, and I have no idea how they did that. How was it like working with your wife during all of that time? And I have had the pleasure of meeting Judy, and she's you know an absolutely delightful lady. So, but it, I just have to ask the question: you know, not all husband and wife businesses are a success. So, how was that? How was that journey for you guys? Yeah, it worked out remarkably well because. Um... We we had we had complementary skill sets and could pretty much do what what we did without getting in each other's way. You know my my skill sets were mostly in business uh, business analysis and writing um, and and uh, you know working with kind of large clients um, and doing new product development and and her skills were in sales and marketing and, uh, you know, kind of managing the office. And, um, you know, that it worked out great because I'm, I was, I'm a terrible manager, um, <laughs> I'm a good analyst, but I'm a terrible manager. And, you know, she, she can laser focus on, on what needs to get done. So it, it actually worked out great in that respect that, that, um, you know, we weren't butting heads on business issues very much because we, you know, we agreed on the direction and where we were going and we each had our roles to play as part of the business. Mm-hmm. That's great to hear. And I know by, you know, we're 10, 15 minutes into the interview and uh, I I suspect our listeners are sitting there thinking, Roman, you've got Jim Miller on your podcast. Ask him some questions about the sector. We want to know, we want to get the latest on what's happening in the sector. So I'm going to give our audience what they probably want right now. So, so look, I mean, I, I think, you know, we'll, we'll go on to talk about, about COVID, but, you know, I suppose pre-COVID, I'd love you to kind of paint a picture of what are the main trends, uh, you know, and shifts in the market that, that, that you are seeing um, and kind of, kind of second part of that question of how do you think those have changed, if if at all, because of COVID? Um, obviously, you, you you know you're a regular speaker and writer on the sector, but I'm sure people would really appreciate your insights on that kind of uh, shift or what we were seeing you know, prior to COVID and and what things might look like now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure COVID has changed things all that much, to be honest. Um, but we'll we'll talk about that more later. Um, you know, the, the, the CDMO industry, you know, for much of its existence, and I would say certainly starting around the year 2000, um, uh, so, you know, the last 20 years, you know, you, you can really think of the business as being, as having, uh, kind of two main drivers or two main parts. Um, one, one has been serving large biopharma companies, um, you know, so-called big pharma. But there, the, the role has, has, I would say, generally been a, a secondary role for the most part, where CDMOs have been a source of supplemental capacity or, um, you know, specialized capabilities and expertise that companies didn't want to to uh, invest in internally because they may have only needed it for one or two products, um, and and also uh, a great a great place to uh, offload facilities and, and older products that uh, as they tried to to uh, restructure and reorient themselves to new opportunities. So you know when it comes to to CDMOs and big pharma. You know that I think they that it's always been kind of a support role rather than um, you know I've, I big pharma has always invested heavily in new technologies and manufacturing for for the new wave, if you will. So you know as as the focus uh, shifted from biologics 
or, or two biologics from small molecule. You know, big pharma spent billions and billions and billions of dollars on new facilities, and you know, uh, CDMOs played some role, but but often it was it was kind of an interim role or a supplemental role as they changed their whole manufacturing infrastructure to focus more on biologics. I think really the great success, now, of course, that's still a big part of the industry because Big Pharma is so big and, and accounts for so much of, of the industry's revenues and new products and so forth. But, you know, I've, I've never thought that, uh, you know, Big Pharma was, um, you know, you know, that CDMOs were as important strategically to Big Pharma as perhaps CDMOs would have liked to feel one of themselves to be. I, I think the great success of, of the CDMO industry has really been to enable the explosion of emerging biopharma and um, that we've seen over particularly the last 10 years post uh, global financial crisis. And that, you know, you had this wonderful convergence of, on the one hand, uh, you know, great science that, that was identifying new targets for drugs and uh, new kinds of drugs to, to address those targets and, and address those diseases. And of course, this, this um, tremendous surge in uh, availability of financing after, uh, you know, after the global financial crisis, you know, starting probably 2013 or so, 2014, where companies were were chasing return and there was just this tremendous desire to invest in in technology general and generally in biopharma in particular so you had that you had all these great product opportunities you had all this money and and then you had the CDMO industry which enabled them to turn basically use the money to turn what was essentially an idea, intellectual property, into actual physical products. And, and the fact is, if the CDMO industry hadn't existed, I don't think you would have had this explosion in the pipeline and in new drug development that we've seen, simply because for and instead of being able to put up, say, $5 million and get proof of concept of, 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 a, of a new drug candidate, you know, it would have taken you several years to build a facility, you know, uh, $10 million to, to you know, build the facility, staff the facility, you know, get it running. And um, like I say, at least a yeah, two to three to four year period to get all that happening. Where, whereas because there was a, a CDMO industry existing, you could get that done for a fraction of the cost and a fraction of the time. So, you know, I think that, I think the great importance of the CDMO industry has really been to, to enable, you know, the explosion in new drug development that we've seen over, over the last 10 years. And, and I think that's been the, the, uh, the critical con uh, contribution of the industry. And, um, you know, in the meantime, other things have, have happened, of course, to, to push it along. Um, you know, the growth of biologics um, obviously uh, has, has resulted in the growth of some very sizable biomanufacturing CDMOs. You know, Wanza, um, you know, obviously being more or less the market leader, but Behringer, Ingelheim, Fujifilm, Samsung Biologics, uh, a, what is now AGC, what used to be CMC Bio, um, Patheon, Catalan, um, you know, a, a substantial uh, number of large biologics manufacturers in the CDMO space who um, are both serving the um, emerging pharma, but also big pharma. And, you know, often, again, it'll be for supplemental capacity, uh, or to open up new geographic regions. I think they're becoming more important. Uh, the, the relationship between biologics, CDMOs, and big pharma is becoming more important as big pharma looks to participate in the biosimilar space. 
and and so you know companies with with operations in in Asia, you know like like a Samsung or Celtrion, you know become very uh, uh, become very important to the industry. So and and at the same time, you know small molecule remains a critical part of the pipeline. You know it's still fifty percent of the new drug candidates. Are small molecules, so it's not like small molecules going away by any means. But I think what what's been interesting there is um, a because the technology itself uh, for making small molecule drugs is pretty mature, and because there are so many well established CDMOs in the marketplace, both in, in particularly in Europe and and uh, in India. You know, well-established, uh, well-respected CDMOs with very good track records for uh, quality and, and dependability. Big Pharma has uh, gotten comfortable with, you know, letting the CDMOs handle what is really a shrinking number of small molecule APIs, but but still an important number of small molecule APIs. You know, while they invest their their internal cash flow more into biologics and now, you know, gene and cell therapy and so forth. So, you know, I think in that segment of the market, you really have seen uh, CDMOs, you know, displacing more big pharma capacity for the benefit of big pharma than perhaps we, you know, we saw 10 years ago. And that's some really interesting insights. And before we go on to talk about COVID and the impact of COVID, I just wanted to take a pause and ask a couple of follow-up questions to, to some of the things that you just mentioned there. One is around, you mentioned, I suppose, uh, almost like a, a transactional nature of using CDMOs historically, uh, particularly from the big pharma companies. Do you, do you see that changing? So I know some of the people we've interviewed on the podcast have said that they've seen a shift from a very transactional vendor uh, approach to a more partnership approach, uh, kind of a shift over the last 20 years or so. Is that is that what you're seeing? And I suppose most specifically, do you see a difference between small molecule and large molecule? So for example, you know, is a small molecule CDMO treated differently by a, a big pharma company than say, um, you know, a large molecule CDMO in uh, you know that you know who are working with a big biotech company. Just just curious to know if you're seeing any kind of nuanced differences be- between the two. Yeah, um, well, I would I would say that um, I think if 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 there are if there is a more partnership oriented approach, it's it's happening in in part in large part. Excuse me, I would argue because. You know, big pharma has has uh, one one of the things they've zeroed in on is is the fact that they had so many CDMO relationships uh, built up over years through acquisitions and geographic expansion and divestitures uh, of facilities and so forth that, that they had you know they had literally hundreds of relationships CDMO relationships that they were trying to manage and it was just getting unwieldy. And they began to realize that, you know, if, if we can consolidate these relationships into a smaller number of larger CDMO partners uh, or suppliers, we could achieve some significant cost savings. First of all, just in terms of administering the the uh, all these relationships, um, uh, but but also, you know, perhaps more favorable pricing and and um, Better integration of of supply chain planning and so forth. So you know, I think there's been a real shift in that direction. Again, I would say that that's probably especially true on the small molecule side, uh, but not exclusively. I, I think um, another thing we have seen, but probably not as much as we might have expected yet, is some novel relationships where biopharma companies say, uh, you know, found themselves behind in certain areas and, you know, felt that they needed to plug into the expertise of a CDMO to to help them catch up. So I'm thinking, 
I mean, the best example I, I can cite there is the relationship between uh, Sanofi and Lanza for biologics manufacturing, you know, where they've, they've developed a partnership where, um, you know, they 50-50 have financed uh, biologics manufacturing uh, capabilities uh, in VISP, uh, Switzerland, you know, Lanza's major site in Switzerland, so that Sanofi's getting additional capacity, but they're being able to leverage, you know, Lanz's, uh, you know, 20, 30 years experience in designing and building and operating biologics facilities. That's an interesting partnership situation. You know, there, there are probably a few examples, probably smaller scale examples than, than that. I, like I said, I would have expected to see more of that, but, you know, I'm, I'm not totally sold yet on the idea that, that, you know, that it really has become a partnership relationship. You know, I, I think it's, you know, if you look at what's happening in gene and cell therapy, for instance, big pharma is using CDMOs a lot because they found themselves without the capacity, gene and cell therapy took off so quickly, they found themselves without the internal capacity they needed, you know, to make the viral vectors to, to, to support the, the pipelines that they've more or less acquired in, in, in recent years and continuing to acquire. So, you know, they're catching up in terms of, of their capital investment in, new gene and cell therapy uh, facilities on the one hand, but they're leveraging the fact that, the you know, a number of major CDMOs, you know, have position you know, capabilities in that, in that area already. And, you know, they've, I think they've con- contracted for a lot of that capacity, they being big pharma, you know, to tide them over as they, as they build up their own internal capacity. Yeah. That's very interesting. That's a really interesting point, isn't it? It's uh, almost like the that wave you mentioned before, the kind of uh, enablement of the explosion of emerging biopharma in the kind of CDMO uh, suppliers were there to uh, you know, enable the market to you know to catch up and go for that quick growth. And it's almost happening again in in the gene cell therapy space, where the you know, the, the, the novel. Pr- Whatever's whatever's causing the market shift, the capacity is just not there at the time, and so the CDMOs kind of step in to uh, to obviously take that to the next level. And you are listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Just kind of switching a little bit towards COVID, but slightly indirectly. Again, the, the point that you mentioned before around what you saw uh, you know, back in in 2013, uh, in terms of the explosion of I suppose finance in the biopharma space. Do you do you see a drop in investment post COVID? Um, I think that you know in previous recessions there's been a drop in finance. In the, in the biopharma space, you know, after a recession or after, obviously this is a slightly, the pandemic is a slightly different situation. Um, but are you envisaging that the market will feel the pinch, you know, in the next couple of years? Obviously there's a lot of CDMOs very involved in COVID related treatments, vaccines and things, but are you expecting that to be some form of dip beyond that point? You know, I really don't expected that I expect the market to be pretty robust for an extended period. You know, what I base that on is the, is the fact that in the last couple of years, uh, there's just been so much money raised, whether it's in public markets or through venture capital or partnering with big pharma, um, or nowadays, you know, even private equity firms, which you know, traditionally would would invest in mature businesses are taking a punt, if you will, and into uh, you know venture capital or or you know new helping to develop pipelines of new drugs. Um, that there's just a tremendous amount of money available. And I you know I was one who thought that we would see 
you know, much to your point that we might see a, a dip in financing for emerging biopharma companies as COVID hit, you know, just because we saw that if, at the with the global financial crisis. But, you know, it's it's been, obviously, it's been just the opposite. And, um, you know, a lot of that has to do with the, the financial conditions that the the uh, Federal Reserve and and the uh, ECB and and um, the Bank of England have created where they dropped interest rates tremendously to support capital markets and so capital markets didn't seize up on one hand you know there was plenty of liquidity and uh, so capital markets were working well and then with with lower interest rates uh, investors had to look harder for for returns on investment and you know we're willing to take greater risks uh, with startup biopharma and so forth so um, there's been a tremendous amount of capital going into the industry it would not be surprising I've seen several references now where where people have suggested perhaps funding has been pulled forward in other words because of the robust environment today, for IPOs in particular, companies, um, but but even for venture capital companies that might have, under normal circumstances, might have waited till twenty twenty one, say for their next round of financing, haven't you know have gone out and gotten that money today because the the, the terms are so favorable. So you know you might see some dip in new financings you know, a year or two out. But again, there, there will have been so much money raised on the one hand. And uh, secondly, you know, big pharma is so dependent on emerging biopharma for pipeline these days, you know, that they'll continue to, to underwrite, uh, you know, a lot of activity um, by emerging biopharma companies. You know, I, I, that's an area where my my views have evolved over over the last few years, and and you know, I, I think if anything were to derail it, it would be changes in the end market. For instance, you know, if payers' willingness to pay for on, new oncology drugs and rare disease drugs, you know, were to decline, and this is something Graham Lewis in his decap presentation uh, recently talked about. You know, he warned that, you know, governments and, and private payers might not be quite as willing to to pay for kind of the, you know, drugs for exotic, uh, you know, very rare diseases just because they're so expensive um, or for oncology drugs that only have mo- uh, marginal benefit and that 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 potentially could change the, the market because there's now a lot of competing demands um, in the healthcare industry. So, I mean, that would be the, the thing I think that you would have to watch out for. But I would say in the near to intermediate term, there, there'll be there's plenty of money uh, supporting emerging biopharma. I'm sure our uh, listeners are encouraged by your <laughs> by your words and your optimism. And uh, I, hope, I hope that's certainly the case. And you mentioned uh, like, I suppose different CDMOs in the in the last few minutes in terms of uh, in different parts of the world. You mentioned the likes of uh, Samsung Biologics and Lonza, and obviously you've got the really big CDMOs over here uh, where we're based in in the US. Do, do you see a change in I suppose sourcing and geography post COVID? Um, we've, we've had quite a lot of discussion on the podcast regarding supply chains and how things might change in the future. Um, and obviously, you're seeing a real emergence. I certainly do of of, of Asian based CDMOs and uh, and and you know, really good quality service providers in that part of the world now. So I'm just curious to know whether or not you see geography playing, uh, I suppose, a role going forward in terms of supply chain, uh, in terms of selection of CDMOs or anything like that. Yeah, I, I think there are a couple things there. Um, I think first of all. You know the growth in demand for for medicines and the ability to develop new medicines in in Asia in particular, and and of course, you know, China, especially in Asia, 
with its huge population and um, in India as well, there there's a, a large domestic market in, in, in those countries that can support new drug development. And certainly in the case of China, you know, a robust uh, venture capital and in public capital markets to to support emerging biopharma companies uh, in those in that country, and you know, for for new products that can be supported really just by domestic demand and and maybe eventually you know broader global market. So yeah, I think the first you know people I would say until maybe five years ago people would traditionally think about. Asia, you know, Asian suppliers serving, being low cost providers for Europe and North America. You know, I think that's less of a driver today simply because there, there's such a robust internal market in, in, in some of those countries to, to, to support you know, domestic drug development and manufacture. So I, I think that's, that's a driver. And, um, I think, um, of course, the other big discussion in the last year has been around um, manufacture of, of critical drugs, particularly generic uh, drugs that are still critical for use either in hospitals or for antibiotics or, you know, needed, you know, say for the military. Um, and a lot of discussion about um, uh, Certainly, when it looked at some point where some of those drugs might be subject to export bans in 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 the countries where they're being manufactured, particularly India, you know, some increased discussion about bringing more of that manufacturing manufacturing of those drugs more back to to North America and Europe. And you know, I guess I remain somewhat skeptical that we're going to see that happening. That um, with the exception of a, f- of a few critical areas, most notably uh, antibiotics, you know, which are critical and which, you know, we're now certainly in the U.S., you know, almost totally dependent on India and China. But, you know, you uh, and there certainly, if for no other reason, because you need it to support the military, um, I would expect to see more. Uh, domestic manufacture of those products. I think what you'll see, uh, I, I think I, I'm, I'm skeptical that a lot more of the supply chain will will come will come back to North America and Europe. And that's because they're going to run up against the, the demands for 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 low drug prices. And 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 the fact of the matter is um, um, you know the 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 pressures in in you know all Western countries are for lower drug prices, including you know uh, generics, but also some of the the more established uh, um, innovator products to be able to justify moving production of of many of those drugs from India or China back to the U.S. and Europe would mean being willing to to pay more. For those drugs, and you know, healthcare budgets are already strained enough that I think there'll be a lot of resistance to that. You know, I I think that the the supply chains, uh, certainly for for generics, will continue to to rely heavily on low lower cost manufacturing locales, uh, including India and China. Um, we've got another five minutes or so left, and I genuinely, I could ask you questions about the sector all day. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna just ask you one last question about uh, the, this, the sector, and, and specifically around COVID. And um, I just wanted to know whether you're seeing an acceleration of any trends due to COVID. So, for example, uh, we've had guests saying that they're seeing acceleration of, say, utilizing digital technology. Obviously, people working from home. Are there any other things that you've seen happen in the sector that were, were trends, but that have happened quicker due to COVID? Interesting question. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's um, you know, certainly certain technologies, you know, obviously the acceleration in 
commercializing mRNA technology, you know, it, it would be an obvious, an obvious one. I'm not sure I, I, I would notice. I mean, there's a lot of talk about, well, certainly when, when it comes to say the business development side, companies are having to figure out how, how to, if you're a CDMO, um, you know, how to sell and contract and manage relationships more virtually. You know, some of that will stick. Some of it, I'm not sure. It, you know, I think people are going to be quite anxious to get back to face-to-face and, and on-site as soon as they can. Um, you know, a lot of facilities already had cameras in them. You know, that that maybe that accelerated that, but that was not a, a new thing. You know, the use of Zoom and other technologies perhaps will have been accelerated. I think what will be most interesting is to see um, what's going to happen in the whole vaccine space, you know, demand for vaccine manufacture and and how that's managed by governments. So, um, you know, up, up to this point, uh, you know, vaccine manufacture was, you know, largely in, uh, you know, by four major pharma companies and then you know, kind of, you know, a few big companies in India and China. Um, and, you know, the idea of having of, of long-term funding of, of vaccines for, for infectious diseases was not, um, was not so much on the radar in, in the U.S. and in many European countries. I think, you know, that, that's going to change for a long time uh, in, in, in the U.S., um, you know, there, there's basically one company, Emergent Biosolutions, that was the major provider of specialty vaccines and and so forth for, uh, you know, anthrax vaccine and, and treatments like that for, for the U.S. military. Now, I would not be surprised to see uh, the government, you know, fund um, not just production of vaccines, but say reservation of capacity for vaccines over a longer term, because this now all of a sudden there's this awareness that you know that we're vulnerable to infectious diseases and and the need to respond quickly. Um, so I think there'll be I think there'll be some interesting changes around that. It's a super interesting point that one, uh, Jim. One of our previous guests who was on uh, a gentleman called Stefan, who is the CEO at, at Fibrologics in Germany, he was talking uh, very, very similarly to yourself around he expects to see a kind of a, a longer term focus on vaccines now because of our awareness of infectious diseases has been really heightened um, as, a, as a long term, I suppose, benefit for the for the sector. But at the same time, he actually talked about the, uh, I suppose, the short term impact of, you know, COVID drugs are or COVID vaccines are hogging all the space in the clinical trials at the minute. So he talked about actually there was a, he expects to see all those delayed uh, trials or all the trials that have been impacted actually pick up again, uh, you know, down the line. So yeah, it's really interesting to get your thoughts on that. And then the last couple of questions, I kind of come, I'm coming full circle here and kind of back to talking about you uh, rather than the sector. And I just wanted to ask you what, what, what is life like for Jim Miller here? you know, now these days based in Massachusetts and, and what are you up to and what does your day job look like? I suspect you're helping companies all over the world. Yeah, you know, it, it, I've, I've been, uh, you know, very active working with companies on strategy questions, um, uh, you know, not so much for injectables these days because most injectables manufacturers just, you know, their hand, they've got a full plate <laughs> trying to deal with the, with the COVID uh, contracts they have, um, the vaccine contracts, but a lot with you know uh, more conventional dosage forms, solid dose, and and uh, uh, drug delivery uh, companies uh, trying to sort through their technologies. So uh, and their their market opportunities. So you know, a fair amount of strate- uh, kind of stra- strategic analysis and planning and advisory. Um, you know, some due diligence and um, doing, been doing a lot of work with DCAT, um, I'm a content advisor uh, to DCAT and um, help put together the uh, their annual 
benchmarking and research study. Um, it's just something they do every year. And this year it's on, it's, it's, I think it's very relevant. It's on business continuity planning and, um, you know, the idea that, that, uh, you know, companies really had to scramble back in the spring, um, when, you know, all of a sudden it became really, you know, the, the supply chain was very disrupted, you know, in, in both in, in, you know, companies own manufacturing operations and supplier op manufacturing operations and the ability to get materials and products from, from one site halfway around the world to another site because domestic, you know, commercial flights have been canceled. Um, so there, there's, uh, you know, we have a, a terrific research committee at DCAT of, you know, very, uh, very high level uh, supply chain executives from both pharma and um, CDMOs. And we put together a really, a, I think a really interesting survey on um, not just how, how did, did you have a business continuity plan before COVID? And if so, how did it work? How well did it work? And um, based on what you've learned, what are you doing now to ensure business continuity plans and management going forward? Um, and I think that's going to be a great service to the industry because, you know, th there is this heightened awareness uh, to, to these potential for supply chain disruptions that, that uh, you know, that's been brought about by COVID. Yeah. So, so that's now certainly encourage any of our listeners to check out uh, DCAT's content because I, I'm a, I'm an avid reader of, of certainly your articles and, and one of your colleagues at DCAT always put out great, great articles. And that, mm -hmm. last couple of questions. Jim, how would how would Judy describe you in three words? Let me see. Um, <laughs> that, I, I don't know if she could do it in three words. Um, <laughs> we, we've never been people of few words. Um, but, uh, but I would like to hope it would be a a, a good partner. Okay. And and in in all aspects of life. That's good. I mean, you can you can. Ask her tonight, maybe over a glass of wine over dinner, and ask her and, and see if that's that's how she describes you. I think that's that would a good be. idea. Yeah, that's yeah. You know, at, at at this point, we're we're probably searching for good co uh, good topics to discuss <laughs> after we've been shut in for nine months. So, uh, that's a great suggestion. And my my final question, Jim. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Is um, you mentioned at the start, you know, his your background or your early career, you were, you know, you went to Stanford, you did business strategy, you worked for the Boston Consulting Group. I just wanted to ask whether much has changed in terms of business strategy in that time. So if you look back at what you learned and what you implemented back in the 90s versus what's going on, uh, say, particularly, obviously, in, in the contract services space, has business strategy evolved hugely in the last 20, 30 years, or it's still fundamentally the same well you know i think it's it's uh, it's an interesting question i um you know because in addition to my own consulting i i work with some large consulting groups periodically as a content expert so i get to see it close up you know i i would say a lot of the the fundamentals are the same really understanding your markets the market segments you know how the different market segments behave, and how and how what how attractive they are, and how you reach them. I, I think those are the, are very similar. I think the um, the focus on technology, manufacturing technology, and and how that drives costs, and how that drives the ability to uh, you know to to say to serve different segments of the market. Um, you know the the impact of economies of scale. All of that I think is very similar. I think what's what you know the the continued digitization of the economy has a lot of impact on the kind on the kinds of solutions that that people come up with today. And the idea that not only do you have to move faster um, and have to be more, if you will, segment of one. It was a term that was of art that was used at one point, you know, um, much more flexible in how you serve uh, customers and groups of customers. And, and you know, technology makes that possible. 
Um, digital technology makes that possible today. Um, I think that is, um, you know, I think that's probably the area where where it's changed the most. So it's it's, you know, not so much the basic analysis that's changed. It's how you, it's the kinds of solutions you come up with, and particularly how you use technology to to influence those or to design those solutions. Yeah, it's so interesting. Thank you for answering that. I was just uh, very. Yeah, really interested in your thoughts on that. And and Jim, we've come to the end of the interview, and uh, you know, I, I genuinely th- think you're a you know <laughs> a fountain of knowledge on the contract services space. And uh, you know, I applaud you for your um, your work in the sector in terms of raising the profile of the sector. Obviously, the business that you had in, in this space. And uh, yeah, I'm very grateful for for you making the time to be a guest on on Molecule to Market. Well, thanks. Thanks very much for inviting me. It was great fun. Um, I love to talk. So that was uh, it, it was a great hour. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Jim. Stay safe. Take care. Thank you too, Ramon. again thanks so much for tuning in to molecule to market we hope you enjoyed today's episode you can find more shows on spotify apple podcast or wherever you like to listen get in touch with us on our website molecule to market pod.com and follow us on linkedin or twitter and we will see you again next week Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.